everyone. We are back with yet another episode of Let's Talk Trends. I'm Dawn, Content and Communications Lead of Lion Global Investors. Thank you so much for being with us here today. In this series, I will be chatting with investment professionals and industry experts to discuss market insights and trending topics in a casual and light-hearted manner. This podcast also aims to provide investing tips and actionable ideas for beginners looking to dip their toes into the world of finance. In this episode, I am thrilled to be joined by our head of AI Investments, Ong Ailing. Ailing is also the fund manager of our Lion Global Disruptive Innovation Fund, known as GDIF. So the metaverse, it is a new buzzword that has captured the imaginations of many since it made headlines in 2021. A term first coined in 1992, it has come to amalgamate several cutting-edge technologies under this umbrella term. In this episode, we are going to delve deep into this theme. Aling is going to help us to debunk some of the common myths in the market and how we can differentiate between hype and reality. Of course, we will share how investors like you may be positioned to capitalize on some of these opportunities. Welcome to this episode, Aling. Thanks, Dawn. It's great to be here. So the metaverse, there has been a lot of attention on this team over the past six months. Uh, a lot of investments have gone into it from the perspective of content, infrastructure, hardware. We saw the public listing of Roblox in 2021, a very popular gaming platform, at a valuation of over 41 billion US dollars. And then we saw Facebook changed its name to Mana Platforms to emphasize that their focus going forward will indeed be on the metaverse. So can you please break this term down for us and help us to understand what exactly is this? Sure. The idea of the metaverse, it's basically a, a wrapper or an umbrella term for the digitization of everything, everywhere, all the time. So if we think about back in the 1980s or 1990s, when we had Web 1.0, the internet was very much in a read-only mode, right? So it, there wasn't a whole lot of interaction. You'd go on to your Yahoo landing page or back then maybe GeoCities homepage, and you'd just read what was put out there, like reading a book. By the early 2000s and what we currently see, what we're very familiar with is what we call Web 2.0, where there is interactivity with the internet. So there's a read and write functionality. You can post your comments, you can interact with the people online. Um, and the idea that the technology leaders have right now is we're entering the age of Web 3.0, where um, we expect humans to read, write, and live in the on the internet, in the metaverse. And by that, we are talking about working online, playing online, and of course, um, a very popular topic is owning assets online, digital assets. So in other words, anything that you haven't seen digitalized already in the past three decades is now open for digitization. And for people who are not so familiar with, say, maybe the gamers who already are playing um, computer games in virtual reality, the best way to think about the metaverse, I'm sure you're familiar with the uh, movie, The Matrix, right? 
it's a fully immersive experience. You sense, smell, you, all your senses are engaged. But of course, it's a very friendly experience. You don't have killer robots. You're not going to meet Agent Smith there and you will not be dying in the metaverse. Well, this is super interesting. And I think, you know, many of us are very familiar with the Matrix. What actually caught my attention is what you said about Web3 and how actually we are reading, writing and in fact living in the metaverse. And back to your point about the Matrix and the gamers, I think it's very natural and common uh, for people to relate uh, gaming and metaverse, right? So games like uh, World of Warcraft, mm -hmm. Final Fantasy, Fortnite are super uh, popular games these days. And as you said, very immersive experiences. Uh, gamers are buying virtual goods with virtual currencies, interacting with one another's avatars. So it seems indeed that these building blocks of the metaverse uh, could potentially be laid out in the gaming world to start. And of course, during the pandemic, I think gaming as a form of media consumption has definitely been accelerated. I have friends who just spend hours on end just <laughs> during lockdown, just, you know, uh, consuming games and playing games, right? However, is this only for the gamers? No, of course not. So all the games that you mentioned earlier, like World of Warcraft and uh, Final Fantasy, Fortnite, these are games that are taken up by the early adopters. And in some ways, I'd say that these gamers are the epitome of what you'd consider a real citizen of the metaverse. But if we think back to how we lead our lives, in many ways, we are already partially in the metaverse, right? Increasingly, especially, you know, brought on about by, by COVID, a lot of us are socializing online, we're dating online, we're playing games online, we're watching movies online. And because of COVID, a lot of us are now working online, right? Completely working online. Online, you know, doing Zoom calls or, you know, even sort of like interacting virtually, you know, with some people would interact virtually with like a CAD, so computer-aided design graphics, where they're designing things and interacting with their colleagues, seeing the same graphic on their computer screen online. Uh, you know, everyone, I guess in Singapore, we're all familiar with home-based learning. A lot of our kids are now studying online and doing tuition online. My kid, for example, takes online chess lessons. In the past, he would have gone for an actual lesson. But now, because it's the internet is becoming so all-encompassing, he can actually do a class with a teacher that is based overseas online. And during COVID, I mean, we have colleagues who went for an online tour of Japan. And um, I also had friends who held a purely online wedding. In fact, gamers tend to lead entire different sets of life online. They tend to have, say, online relationships with people who are different from their offline relationships. They sometimes are part of clans and allegiances that are purely online, that's separate from their online group of social friends. And they even get married to people online that's different from, you know, the, the person that they're dating offline. So there are many ways in which we're starting to see that online and offline experience start to intersperse and merge. Yes, indeed. I mean, I'm not a gamer, but I totally agree that all of us are in fact partially uh, already in the metaverse. As what you mentioned, uh, just the Zoom calls that we had over the past couple of years are absolutely astounding. And of course, there are many relatable experiences like smart home devices like Alexa, uh, home gym, personal training devices like Peloton, etc. And like what you mentioned, our colleague going for online tours of Japan or your son having uh, virtual chess lessons or people going for online weddings, you know, all these things are totally blurring the lines between physical and the virtual worlds. 
And also just to add on a couple of more examples that I've seen, uh, you know, Roblox is hosting sporting events, music festivals, uh, luxury fashion shows. And then something that's very close to my heart is a Gucci's 100th anniversary is actually held as an online exhibition. And to me, this is very interesting uh, because it exemplifies how the metaverse has the potential to make things like art and fashion so much more accessible to millions of people and perhaps even expanding self-expression to virtual territories. That's perfect. The way that you embrace the um, online events and like Gucci's 100th anniversary is a great example of how millennials and Gen Zs think about um, the virtual world. And in, in many ways, we at GDIF actually do want to be embracing that and following where the younger people are spending their time online and investing alongside that. Well, thanks so much. Uh, so the next big question uh, that's also related to the metaverse is another big buzzword that's the blockchain. So how's the metaverse linked to blockchains and NFTs and crypto? Can you please give us a quick lowdown on these terms? Yes, um, the whole blockchain crypto community is very often put in the same light as the metaverse. It doesn't actually have to be. It, the reason it's linked is because cryptocurrency have somehow found their way as the de facto currency on the metaverse. NFTs, which are also known as non-fungible tokens, have become the de facto way of expressing ownership of virtual objects in the metaverse. These are tokens that are effectively executed on blockchain technologies like Ethereum, like Cardano, like Solana. And they actually form the backbone for smart contracts in a number of use cases and often form the uh, infrastructure layer for certain decentralized quote-unquote metaverse platforms like um, Decentraland and Sandbox. You will note that I use the term de facto a lot. And really, this is because um, the use of crypto or the use of blockchains, I'd like to say, is the wild, wild west of the internet. This is a space that's unregulated, it's decentralized, and their original and sole purpose is often to be out of the reach of regulatory regimes and out of the reach of governments, central governments. So whilst I think, yes, there's a lot of buzz around blockchain technologies, around NFTs, around crypto, Bitcoin, I'd be um, just a little bit cautious, um, especially of any sort of speculative activities in this space. And the reason is because whilst some of them may eventually be worth something, um, there's, there's something like, I think at last count I looked, it was about 12,000 different crypto coins available in the world, right? And I'd say, I'd, I'd guess that 99.9% .9 are not going to be worth anything at all. And if you actually went and read the white papers that underlie some of these, what we used to call initial coin offerings, or now they're calling them the uh, initial NFT offerings, if you went and read the white paper about it, very few of them actually have real use cases at all. If I remember, you know, back in the 2015, 16, there, there was a bubble back then, some people were issuing coins and tokens in order to fund their purchases of their latest flat screen TV. So if you actually read that, you'd probably say, no, nah, I don't really want to give you, uh, invest in you getting a flat screen TV. 
Well, I think that's a very good advice for our listeners here. That everything that comes with a lot of hype uh, surely comes with some level of speculation and investors have to really do their research and be very careful about what they're actually uh, investing in. Indeed. So I'm going to uh, come back to the metaverse again. So a quick round of quick fire question. Is the metaverse here now? Yes or no? Well, there's no easy answer to that one. Um, yes, it is, because as we mentioned earlier, there's a lot of digitization of the, the way we live and a lot of um, digital footprints being left behind. Yes, the concept is gaining acceptance. Currently, there's a bit of an arms race going on by various tech giants to try and build and own the various platforms. But no, there are still a lot of things that have yet to be agreed upon, right? There are many layers of standards that we need to we need to agree on. So for example, the gateways, currently each platform is a standalone. Roblox is not connected to Minecraft. Decentraland is not connected to Sandbox. So the ideal of a metaverse is that we should be able to cross seamlessly from one app or one platform to another, right? Another thing that um, I think is, will need a lot of improvement is the user interface, right? Currently, we have augmented reality or virtual reality goggles. Um, the two are different, by the way. Augmented means you can still see the stuff outside, but it's just that you can see virtual characters augmented on top of your surroundings, whereas virtual reality goggles, you, you're completely immersed in it. And, you know, with some companies that are coming up with gloves or items that you can hold in your hand to give you some sort of like additional sensory experience. But I think there is still a lot to be had in this space. If you have an opportunity to, to try it, I'll show you this Oculus Beta Edition that I had from 2014. When you try it and you go and um, buy one of the new Oculus Quest that we see today in the market, you will find that the experience is not all that different. Yes, the resolution is slightly higher. Yes, the lagginess is slightly better. But, you know, when I first tried it in 2014 and when I you know tried it again earlier this year, I still experience a little bit of motion sickness. I still am a little bit worried about the impact on my eyesight because you know, the pixelation is still not great. So I think in that department, the technology definitely needs to improve. And we certainly see the, the front runners spending a lot on CapEx to try and build out that technology. But I think one area where um, acceptance might grow is the pricing of it. So when I first bought the Oculus in 2014, it was well over a thousand USD. And now the latest model, the Oculus Quest, is only 299 USD. So I guess I was a, an early adopter, if you want to say that. Um, but nowadays, you know, a lot of parents might just buy the Oculus Quest as a Christmas present for their kids, right, if they ask for it. In terms of things that still need to evolve, no, um, it would be the monetary standard. We talked about blockchain and cryptocurrencies earlier. It's still not clear out there whether crypto needs to be the standard of exchange. I mean, we're perfectly happy buying things online, you know, buying my groceries with my credit card. Why do we have to use blockchain to buy something on the metaverse? Why can't I just use my credit card? Could it be more convenient? Um, different people will argue um, different things. And, you know, right now, let's just agree to disagree. And then when it comes to the infrastructure around it, there's a lot of the back-end compute standards that are very different. Some people, are the, the traditional internet is more centralized. So the proponents of blockchain and therefore some people who believe in the metaverse are going for a decentralized approach. And you could end up with a hybrid approach. 
right? And in order to, can you imagine for a fully immersive experience of the kind that you get in the matrix and you're constantly connected 24-7, you'd need a lot of bandwidth. So 5G alone is not enough. I think even 6G, you know, might not support you that kind of level. So a lot of that compute power as well as the bandwidth required is still, you know, in the works. That's very interesting. Thanks so much for sharing. Actually, I just wanted to make a short comment on the Oculus um, version that you were saying because I was watching your recent webinar that you had with Sexo uh, on the metaverse. And during the webinar, you were able to show uh, basically the, the Oculus headset itself, yes. right? So I thought that was actually uh, very interesting. And well, I'm going to agree with you that, you know, there's so many layers that have yet to be agreed upon um, and, you know, so many things have to come together for a seamless ecosystem uh, to work. And I think uh, we're definitely still uh, some time uh, to achieve that, right? Mm. So for the more uh, technically inclined um, investors among us, uh, there's so many charts out there from so many different sources that represent the many different layers or segments uh, of the metaverse. So can you please broadly just kind of talk us through some of the key categories um, for investors to just better understand this concept? Yes, indeed. Um, I've seen so many, you're right, I've seen so many different maps of the metaverse and some of them get a little bit too complicated. They try and talk about it like an onion, like it's like seven layers, eight layers, nine layers, and then it gets we get lost in the details. I think for um, your average investor, unless you're you're a computer geek. Um, my personal preference is to try and simplify the way we approach it into three broad categories. Think of them as layer one. The first layer is your gatekeepers or your gateways. And examples of these would be the games that we were talking about, World of Warcraft, Roblox. You know, th this is where like the landing page, when you first land, um, you know, what is the first page I, I surf to in the metaverse. So it's the equivalent of your Google right now, right? Um, and, you know, there are also non-gaming alternatives like Sandbox, uh, Decentraland, so decentralized hangout places. And this is where I think um, there's a bit of an arms race going on. Anyway, so the second layer is um, wh where I group together the user interface, the content and digital economy players, you know, the, the payment gateways. Here are effectively all the service providers to the first layer, right? The, the guys who are providing content to them or, or the, you know, the, they're providing the payment system to them. And that, that's an interesting space as well. And then the third layer will be the back-end compute and infrastructure partners. So the guys who are providing bandwidth, the guys who are providing the computational power in order to power the metaverse. Think of it like as the engine behind the metaverse. And um, the reason why I sort of try to break it down into these three categories is because I feel that from an investment point of view, right, the way we try and invest in the metaverse will vary depending on whether we're looking at category one, two, or three. Right now, the tech giants and the media attention is very much focused on layer one and to some extent layer two. Hence, we talk about Facebook. We talk about all the games that we've mentioned earlier. We talk about uh, the cryptocurrency world. What is the right blockchain to buy you know, so that I can get a part of the metaverse? But actually, the way I think about it is that's where the gold rush is happening, right? It's like, and during a gold rush, actually, who's the guy who's benefiting the most? You know, from, from experience, I can tell you that it won't necessarily be all the players who are digging for gold or panning for gold. A lot of them will spend a lot of money, uh, burn a lot of capex, and may not necessarily be the dominant player at the end of it. 
In fact, I think the back end guys, the infrastructure partners, that's where you might see a, a situation where whoever wins, whether it's Facebook or Google that, that dominates the metaverse eventually, I am providing them compute. They're going to have to pay me. And that's where I think um, you'll find a lot of beneficiaries at this stage for the metaverse. So this is very interesting, right? As you talk about this gold rush phenomena happening. So who are these spade and shovel sellers in this gold rush? Indeed. So the way I like to think about how we could invest in this space is to look back to how the internet, how you would have invested in the internet back in the 1980s and 90s. So we're currently in stage one of the build-out phase, right? Where you have a lot of people fighting to be the leader, trying to be the gateway or the search engine or the landing page. But, you know, do you remember for every Google, do you remember that there used to be an Ask Jeeves, a Lycos, an Alta Vista, or even a Yahoo, which unfortunately is not that popular these days. I only remember Yahoo, but I'm no clue about the rest of the names you mentioned, to be exactly. honest. Yeah, and, and, and I think when I was your age, Alta Vista was the dominant search engine back then. Um, but yeah, no, Google was definitely not the first, but somehow they've become the um, the dominant player. And, you know, these days when you want to check out what your, what your friend or your ex-boyfriend has done <laughs> over the weekend, um, you would go to Facebook and check his post, right? But, you know, very few people remember that before Facebook was popular, there used to be Friendster, there was Friends Reunited, there was MySpace, and people used to blog on GeoCities as well. So during this initial rush, I think, you know, the way we think about the beneficiaries is the guys who are actually providing that um, that back-end compute and infrastructure layer that we're talking about. So the main beneficiaries we see here will be the hardware players who benefit from all the capex that the, um, the, the first two layers are trying to spend to build out the stuff. And later on, when that ecosystem is established, maybe in about 10 or 15 years from now, that's when we see mass adoption starting. And then you can have like the app layer that will be built upon, this gate, uh, upon these gateways. So... So to use the internet example, it'd be like when smartphone is readily available for uh, mass adoption. And that's when the smartphones um, can actually power e-commerce and power mobile games. That's when you have players like Amazon becoming the dominant player for e-commerce or you, you can have Tencent become the dominant player for mobile games. So as I mentioned earlier, we're still in the early days of this gold rush. So the beneficiaries that I expect will really be the um, hardware enablers and infrastructure providers who get all the capex that's being spent by the tech giants and all the startups that are being funded by all the venture capital money. There's a lot of liquidity in the market right now, and that will flow to spending on these um, hardware enablers. So, for example, Credit Suisse estimates that there's going to be a 20x growth in data usage over the next 10 years as the metaverse grows, right? Because of that, the infrastructure on the infrastructure layer, we expect three areas that will benefit and will require significant computing power. So the first area is data storage. There are a lot of uh, the data storage providers will benefit. The guys who provide the chipsets to enable such data storage will benefit. The second area will be uh, CPU and GPU uh, computing needs in order to you know, test and bring out the overall metaverse concept. And the third area will be the guys who will be spending on networking 
right? Because as I mentioned earlier, network speeds will have to upgrade with the metaverse always being online. There's a lot of demand on uh, high resolution visuals, audio and sensory activities. So that will need a lot more bandwidth. In terms of the hardware space, that will be your usual guys, the equipment makers like TSMC, Samsung Electronics, NVIDIA, Micron, Intel. And in terms of the infrastructure, you also start seeing cloud data center operators and equipment manufacturers, guys like Arista Networks, Cisco Systems, um, and also potentially Alphabet, Amazon, and Microsoft for their cloud data center superiority. So like Amazon Web Service, uh, Microsoft Azure, those are the guys who will benefit as uh, more and more demand goes onto the cloud data centers. Um, at this point in time, we really still think that the software and user interface layers are still relatively immature and there will potentially be some hype there. Well, thanks so much for all this information. I think it's all super uh, useful and helpful to our listeners here. You know, I'm hearing that, uh, of course, data usage because of the metaverse is going to increase exponentially as one can imagine. And all these things need significant computing power. Uh, you mentioned areas like data storage, uh, CPU needs, uh, network speeds and hardware names that we like, infrastructure, etc. So let's bring this back to us and you know our Global Disruptive Innovation Fund. So how is our Global Disruptive Innovation Fund actually investing and participating in the metaverse? That's an excellent question, Dawn. It's my favorite question of the podcast. <laughs> um, when we, so we actually tried to compare ourselves to the top 10 holdings of a typical metaverse-focused and metaverse-specific ETF. We realized that actually 90% of these names that they're investing in, we've been investing in since even before last year. You know, we mentioned earlier that the metaverse really is an amalgamation of so many different concepts that are taking off of so many different long-term secular growth themes. And the beauty of GDIF or the Global Disruptive Innovation Fund is that we're really an evergreen fund. We have been, you know, identifying themes like cloud computing, digital entertainment, esports. We were investing in AR, VR, so network infrastructure. So we have already been investing in all these beneficiaries even before Meta changed its name, even before Roblox IPO'd, and even before everyone started talking about the metaverse um, last late last year, right? So that's why, you know, when I when I do like, you know, the, the sexual webinar presentation that I was talking about, um, I always title that slide, you know, even though the metaverse is a new chapter to us. It is to, to GDIF and Lion Global, it is merely a new chapter in what we consider a very well-loved book. Yeah, indeed. I think all this is uh, very interesting and you and your team has already identified the 16 key disruptive teams, you know, years before, as you mentioned, that the metaverse, um, the hype of the metaverse actually came about last year. So how do we feel about, you know, potential regulations on this metaverse theme, right? Because nowadays, you know, we keep talking about safety, privacy, uh, antitrust, and all these are very much key talking points uh, in the investment community these days. Uh, that is a very topical question at the moment. 
I think there will come a day when the metaverse starts getting regulated. And to some extent, for the metaverse specifically, the regulations that apply to our current internet will apply to the metaverse. And there will probably be, and this is really just my personal opinion, there will probably have to be even stricter rules and regulations because it relates to children accessing the internet and a lot of information about their digital self being shared online. Um, the other area that you know people have been talking about in terms of regulations, we talked about cryptocurrencies and NFTs earlier. You know, I think it's particularly interesting given what's happening right now with Russia, Ukraine, that the space in cryptocurrency might be facing its first ever regulatory challenge. The regulators have been largely trying to regulate, but mostly with a light touch and, you know, short of a few countries banning it outright. Most other countries are like adopting a wait and see approach. But with Russia, Ukraine, as, you know, the US realizes that potentially people might try to use the crypto world to, 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 to circumvent sanctions, um, I suspect we're going to see a lot more heavy-handed regulations come down and regulators are not inclined to this. Alternatively, it's also possible that the crypto um, exchanges and the crypto um, community themselves might try to self-regulate. But if they do so, it will really call into question their original idea around decentralization and deregulation and being away from the reach of the government's arm as a, as a central ethos to, to their system, to their ecosystem. So I think, you know, it's, it's a very interesting question. It's very topical. And, um, you know, I suspect we're going to see a lot more in that space. Yeah, thanks so much. I think it's a very insightful indeed. So in Mangalis in the near term, right, or, or currently our portal into the metaverse right now is primarily through a virtual or augmented a reality devices. So uh, this is going to be the last question. So let's push the envelope. <laughs> and if we look ahead, uh, what other thoughts do you have on how uh, or what the metaverse might actually portend for human beings? Ah, right. The um, this is a very philosophical question. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> I think this is a space. This is a this is something that I've been grappling with, right? Um, it, it brings together, as I said, you know, amalgamation of many different topics. As we think about the digitization of the human footprint, leaving behind digital footprints, you know, and, and creating a lot of big data, um, I often also wonder, right, could this move towards the metaverse catalyze this, the arrival of the singularity? So if you're not, um, I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of singularity, um, it's really this uh, concept that there will come a point in time where computers become so advanced that um, the embedded artificial intelligence will transcend human intelligence. And you will see a merger of human beings and computer, so what they call a biodigital fusion. Um, AI supercomputers will become sentient beings with cognitive capacity and humans can upload their digital twins and then will be able to live forever in this metaverse. Um, and 
you know, I think there was a series, there was an episode in this series called uh, Black Mirror. Ah, yes. <laughs> Very <laughs> popular sci-fi series. Yes. Yes. yes, I do like it. So, so there was one episode, I think, where um, the lady's husband passed away. And based on the husband's digital footprint, so the posts that he'd been posting on Facebook, the tweets he'd been tweeting on Twitter, digital photographs, digital videos, they pieced together an AI version of him, right? What he would look and feel like in a virtual world if he was still alive. And I mean, in that episode, it gets a little crazy and eventually they bring a, a real like physical mannequin of him. Um, but I think... That, that is something that uh, Ray Kurzweil has been talking about a lot. You know, if you watch some of his videos on YouTube, he predicts that one day we can upload our consciousness, our mind into the cloud. One day when we lose our human physical body, we could still live forever in the cloud. And I mean, I don't know how different people would react to this, but would you be happy if one day you could you know, be a virtual being on the cloud. And when your kid, when you've passed on, your kid comes to you and asks you a question, mommy, do you think I should marry this woman or that woman? And you can give give him or her your advice or maybe your grandkids or your great grandkids, right? You can still converse and give them advice that you would. Wouldn't that be, would that be exciting or would that be scary, right? Both, so. both. Very <laughs> exciting, but also uh, very scary. And yes. as you mentioned, I think it's very, uh, he has very deep uh, philosophical and also ethical, I think, considerations yes, uh, uh, for, for many of us, right? So I think in general, uh, to summarize, I guess the metaverse truly, as you uh, so aptly encapsulated in this podcast, uh, presents transformational new opportunities because its very essence implies that it is unconstrained uh, from the physical limits of time and space. And while indeed it could take five years, 10 years, or even 20 years you know, to fully realize the metaverse, uh, we are already seeing a glimpse of some of these astonishing possibilities afforded by it. Well, thanks so much, Eileen, uh, for this a very insightful uh, discussion. I think all of our listeners here have a much better idea on what the metaverse brings and how we can capture some of these opportunities with our Lion Global Disruptive Innovation Fund. So here we are at the end of the podcast. Uh, thank you everyone for joining us, uh, darling in, and to Eileen for joining us here. Catch you guys next week. Thank you, Dawn. Thanks, everyone. Disclaimer, you should read the prospectus available at www.lionglobalinvestors.com before deciding whether to invest in the funds. The value of the units in the funds and any accruing income may rise or fall. This advertisement has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore.